An old farmer once went to the city one weekend and attended the big city church. He came home and asked, his, and his wife asked him how it was. Well, said the farmer, it was good. They did something different, however. They sang praise courses instead of hymns. Praise courses, his wife said. What are those? Oh, they're okay. They're, they're sort of like hymns, only different, said the farmer. Well, what's the difference, asked the wife. The farmer said, well, it's like this. If I were to say to you, Martha, the cows are in the corn, well, that would be a hymn. If, on the other hand, I were to say to you, Martha, 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 oh, Martha, 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 the cows, the big cows, the brown cows, the black cows, the white cows, the cows, the cows, the cows are in the corner, in the corner, in the corn, well, that would be a praise course. During my 25 years of pastoring, I've watched the Church of Canada, for the most part, shift from hymns to courses, a process that's been far from smooth. I'll never forget walking through the worship wars at my last church. Everyone desiring, everyone fighting for what they thought was the best worship. Some thinking that it was time for something new, others wanting to cling to what was tried and true, all genuinely wanting what they considered to be good worship. Well, as I listened and tried to navigate it all, what I discovered is that when it comes to worship, most people have in their minds a criteria, an idea of what that looks like, an idea about what distinguishes good worship from bad worship and good worship from great worship. Maybe it's when the band plays a chorus that I like, that I hear on the radio all the time, or, or perhaps it's when the dust is blown off the hymnal and the organ is cranked up and the piano has been newly tuned. For others, it's when the pastor is really short or is pounding the pulpit and preaching fire and brimstone, or, or when there's a drama or a video that specifically impacts them. Regardless, everyone seems to have in their mind an idea, a criteria that allows them to determine what good worship is. Well, have you ever wondered what God's criteria for worship is? After all, if worship is directed to him, if it was meant to please him, shouldn't what he wants be the main criteria for us in our worship? I mean, shouldn't we want to know what his opinion is? Well, in the passage we come to today, God, after reminding us why he's worthy of our praise, starts to lay out for us some of the kinds of things he desires from us in our worship. So if you would take your Bibles and turn with me back to the book of Malachi, this time, chapter 2. Malachi, sorry, Malachi chapter 1. Just the tail end of chapter 1. As you turn to remember the last week, you started into this book, the, the book of Malachi, a book that I believe contains God's word to his people during the time between Nehemiah's first stint as governor in the land of Judah, when he had returned from Persia to help re rebuild the walls and lead the people in rededicating themselves, and his second stint, when he had returned only to see much of the reforms that he had led start had, and started hadn't lasted. You see, it's just that while Nehemiah was gone, the, the people's dedication to God had crumbled. Their excitement had failed to apathy, and they had fallen back into their old ways. Without Nehemiah, they seemingly couldn't maintain, they couldn't sustain the momentum. Well, it was during this time that God sent Malachi to them to encourage them to stay the course and to warn them what would happen if they didn't. Last week, we learned that Malachi started off his book by answering a question that the people were struggling with, the question of whether God really still loved them. You see, it's just that for those that Malachi was writing to, the glories of the past were long gone. Sure, there had been brief excitement over the return to Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple and the walls, each a seeming miracle, but the excitement, it hadn't lasted. Well, they had had such high hopes, they had all but been dashed, as Israel remained nothing but a financially depressed fringe province among this vast Persian empire. Their, their capital city, Jerusalem, which had been looted and burned and largely razed, 
not much more than a, a century and a quarter before, while it now had a wall, still most of it lay in ruins. Their population was decimated. And for those that were there, they were struggling to survive, eking out a precarious, hard scramble existence on at best marginal land. One thing is sure, they didn't feel much like God's chosen people. And so they felt neglected and ignored by God. I mean, is this really all God had for them? And so they were questioning God's love. Well, their question hadn't gone unnoticed by God. And so through Malachi, God gave them his answer, reminding them that he had not only shown his love by choosing them from among all the nations to be the ones that he would bless, but by being with them and never leaving them. Sure, they had experienced blessing and judgment and destruction and building for centuries. But in all these things, God, he had loved them and continued to work with them, continually showing up, speaking to them and walking with them. When they were ignorant, God, he blessed them with a true knowledge of himself. When they were weak and defenseless, he empowered them and shielded them from their enemies. When they had strayed, God had disciplined them. Because those he loves, he disciplines, just like a father disciplines for the benefit of their child. Through it all, God had been committed to them. A commitment that assured that while those that opposed God wouldn't survive, they, as Judah, his people would. A commitment that guaranteed that they would have a future and a hope. Well, no doubt it was because they questioned God's love. They questioned his commitment that their commitment to him, their commitment to God had waned. And it was starting to show up in their worship. And as a result, their worship, it just wasn't what it was supposed to be. And so after reminding them of his love, God decides to address the problem. If you would, follow along as I read, starting in verse 6. Malachi 1, verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying the Lord's temple, the table is temp contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now you implore God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offering will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you, you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them a sacrifice, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrificed a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. You know, there are still some places in the world today where being a pastor or a priest carries with it a level of respect, where people talk to you a certain way and they treat you with a certain level of dignity. In fact, it's not uncommon for when people realize who I, who I am and more specifically what I do, that they treat me differently. 
I can't tell you how many times I've been talking with someone and didn't know I was a pastor who immediately changed how they talked to me when they found out that that is what I do. All of a sudden, all the swear words seem to disappear from their vocabulary and they treat me differently. Well, the people of Judah had forgotten who they were talking to, who they were worshiping, and it was affecting their worship. And so God here, he reminds them of who he is to them. So this is the first thing we want to notice today, that God deserves our worship, that God, he deserves our worship. And did you know that the English word for worship, it comes from an old word, an old English word that means worship. It means to describe something or to, to someone or something, honor or respect, to proclaim their worth. Well, that's exactly what the people of Judah had forgotten. They had forgotten how worthy God was. And so God called to their attention, to, called to their attention who he was to them, reminding him, them that he was their father. That was something they all knew. After all, they all knew. Their, their scripture had told them that God had sent Moses to say to Pharaoh before the Exodus, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go that he may worship me. They all read how God had promised that he'd bring his people back, saying, I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, who I created for my glory, who I formed and made. And they had heard how Isaiah had called God our Father and our Redeemer. So for them, it wasn't really debatable. It was calmly accepted. God was their Father. Just like a loving father, he had saved them from harm and protected them from tragedy countless times. He had redeemed them like a loving father, nurtured them like a loving father, disciplined them like a loving father. But, but here's the thing. While no one would have denied that he was their father, they didn't treat him like one would normally treat their father. They didn't obey or honor him, let alone glory in him or revere or respect him. But not only that, God, he was also their master. So God reminds them of that. Over at Isaiah 41, we read, But you, O Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. But you know, sadly, while they wouldn't have denied that they were his servants, while they would have even boasted about being his servants, it hadn't affected how they lived. After all, while a servant should fear, while they should respect their master, that wasn't how they were treating God. And so here God reminds them who he was, what he had done for them, and how that should affect their relationship with him. See, it was just that having forgotten who God is had affected their worship. So much so that God goes so far as saying that by the way they're worshiping him, rather than praise him or please him, that they were doing the opposite, that they were despising his name. That term despise, it's an attitude of ongoing disrespect. It, it refers to an act of conveying insignificance or worthlessness upon an object or an individual it was the word that was used in the Genesis story concerning Esau and Jacob when Esau thought that his birthright was insignificant and traded it for a bowl of soup. In other words, by despising God's name, they were treating God as if he wasn't important or significant to them at all. Well, sadly, I believe much of what passes for worship today isn't much different than that. After all, it's just too easy for us today to forget who God, the God we worship is as it was for them. To the business of our life, either take him for granted or no longer see him as that important, much less be in awe of him. 
to somehow forget that the God we worship, he isn't just the creator of everything, the one who made everything we see and the one to whom whom we owe our very existence, but the one who sustains everything. As the Apostle Paul put it, the one who holds all things together. In other words, if God were but to remove his hand for a minute, the very makeup of matter, the laws that govern our world would spin out of control and all would be lost. It isn't hard for us to reach the point that we no longer see God's majesty and his sovereignty and creativity through all that he has made, the wonders of these, what he's made, and, and stand in awe of it. And it's all too easy for us to forget what he's done for us as believers in choosing us, redeeming us, preserving us, saving us from sin and death, adopting us into his family and giving us a future to fail to remember or take for granted that despite God's grandeur, despite not needing us, he loved us anyways. He loved us when we didn't deserve it and didn't even want it and came and lived among us to give us hope and peace. That he's a friend of the wayward, a father to the fatherless, a savior of sinners, the holy, righteous God that is beyond and yet loving enough to draw near to us in Jesus. For us to forget, like Judah did, that God is our father. Jesus, he said as much after his resurrection when he told Mary, Do not cling to me, for I have not ascended to my father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. The Apostle Paul would later write, Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then a heir through God. And yet despite those verses and many others, somehow we tend to forget that God as our father is our father. And as our father loves us, protects us, and cares for us. That we are his servants, servants of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And when we fail to remember all these things, when the breathtaking nature of God becomes mundane to us and the wonder of what he does for us, has done for us seems commonplace and we take them for granted, our worship slips, just as it did for Judah, into something less than what it should be. Many years ago, the Archbishop of Paris told the story about three young men who one night had traveled around Paris indulging in all their sensual appetites that the, the city had to offer. They sampled all the delicacies of sin, if you will, and at the end of the night, they found themselves on the step of the cathedral, sprawled out in this drunken stupor. As the sun rose, they relived, relived their escapades with each other from the night before. Well, as they did so, one of the men had this bright idea that they should go inside and find a confessional booth. We'll ask the priest to forgive us of all our sins that we just committed, they said thinking it would be fun to make a mockery of the church. Great way to cap their night. Invigorated by laughter, his friends, one of them volunteered. He walked into the cathedral and asked to see a priest. As he sat in the confessional booth, he confessed all the sins he had committed in lurid details and concluded with, I know all Jesus did, did for me, but I don't give a care. Well, he, he had another word for care that I won't repeat. Realizing what had happened, the priest stopped him and said, I've heard enough. You don't need to confess anything else to me. If you would like to be forgiven your sins, you need to do one thing. Outside the confessional are steps leading up to the altar. On the altar is a statue of Jesus. Simply go up to the statue, kneel, look at Christ on the cross, and say those words to him. The boy is shocked, but he left the booth, and as his friends walked, he made his way up to the altar. Then he looked up at Jesus on the cross and said, Lord Jesus, I know all you've done for me. But then he paused couldn't get the words out. In that moment, peering at a statue, he became aware of who Jesus was. He did care. Jesus' love overwhelmed him. And he said, would you forgive me of my sins? The Archbishop of Paris said he knew the story was true because it was of him. 
You see, as long as he was playing games, his sacrifice, his confession, his worship, it meant nothing. But when he was forced to take a serious look at Christ, all of a sudden he responded in true worship. And the same thing, it happens today. After all, it's only as we see God as our redeeming Father and Master, our Savior and King, and remember how much He's done for us through Jesus, that we too see Him for what He is worth and respond in worship that He is worthy of. Dear friends, if you struggle to worship God, if you don't praise Him and worship Him with your words and actions, if you can't bring yourself to raise your voice and sing to Him, then you need to remember who it is that you are following. Because it's only as you do that you will not only will praise become easy for you as a desire to worship him will well up in your heart, but your worship itself will be acceptable to him. Well, here, after telling those in Judah that they should worship him, God goes on to outline for them how their worship, the worship they were doing, wasn't acceptable to him, how it currently wasn't making the grade. And as he does so, he outlines for us some of the things that he wants from us in worship. Which leads us to the next thing we want to notice today, that God deserves our best in worship. A God, he deserves our best in worship. Sadly for Judah, the problem, it went all the way to the top, all the way to the priests themselves. Those that had been commissioned to, to represent God, to be the go-between, the, to represent God to the people and the people to God. After all, the priests, they were not only supposed to make the offerings of the temple, but they were to ensure that the offerings were acceptable. And yet, as we learn here, they were failing to do so. And instead, we're bringing worthless offerings and placing defiled food on God's altar. Like kids that have been caught not wanting to admit the truth, the priests even ask God, Who, us? We would never do that. How have we defiled you? Truth, it's embarrassing that God even has to answer. After all, the priests should have known that God takes his sacrifices very seriously. In fact, their history was full of examples. Like when Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, offered unauthorized sacrifices to the Lord, and God had sent down fire and consumed them. See, God had been clear. The priests, they knew that the sacrifices were important, that they were supposed to be unblemished, and yet instead of doing what they were supposed to do and rejecting those that were blemished, they were accepting them. Accepting animals that were in some way defective, that were blind or crippled or sick. And by doing so, we're allowing and even encouraging the people to offer less than their best to God. God here basically says, come on, guys, you are trained. You know what I've asked for. And even if you didn't, use some common sense. You wouldn't bring this dribble to your governor and expect that he'd be happy with it, would you? Do you really mean to tell me that you don't think he'd be insulted and wouldn't dismiss your request if you did? Well, if he deserves more, don't you think that I, your God and king, do? So why do you bring such second-rate offerings to me? Just for a moment. Suppose a husband comes home from work with a Valentine's gift on Valentine's Day. It's a cheap plastic figurine that he picked up from the convenience store around the corner. Figurine is dressed in an apron, bearing the logo, World's Best Wife. Would it surprise you if his wife were less than impressed by his offering? Well, like that, the sacrifices they were offering revealed how important, or rather how unimportant, God was to them. Now, no doubt the priests, they had their reasons. Perhaps they had lowered the standards because they thought that times were tough, that the economy it hadn't really recovered from the exile, so they figured the only gracious thing to do was to give the people some more time. Surely that's something that God would want them to do. 
So when the people brought in sick animals, they took them and used them for burnt offerings. As a burnt offering was completely burnt and no one had to eat them. Sure, they're referred to as food here, but they all knew that it was only symbolic. That it wasn't as if God ate them. It was just a symbol of table fellowship. So what harm was there in it? And when the people brought in lame and blind animals, they took them for the other offerings where the priests and the offerer got to eat some of the sacrifice. After all, they were just as edible as other animals. Farmers have always eaten blind and lame animals. And the Israelite farmers were certainly used to doing so. Blind or not, they tasted the same. So there was no harm to it. Or maybe it was that the priests were cutting deals with the worshiper, perhaps accepting a larger number of lesser quality animals in lieu of a smaller number of higher quality animals, giving the priest more share, a higher income, if you will. Regardless, culling the herd and getting worship credit from God for doing so, at the same time, it was like killing two birds with one stone. It seemed practical. Besides the alternative, giving up the very best of what one owned, the finest breeding stock and the healthiest animals was something that plenty of Israelites were simply not willing to do. I mean, wasn't it better to take whatever little the people wanted to bring than to be fussy about it or to go without? So the compromise, it made sense to them. I mean, it wasn't as if they weren't giving to God. Sacrifices were being made. Perhaps even more sacrifices were being made than if they had held to the standards. No, instead, it was just that they were choosing to give God their leftovers. Both the people and the priests benefited from it, and worship attendance only increased. The only loser was God. So they let these blemished animals pass their inspection and offered them up. But here's the thing. When you give God a sacrifice that isn't really a sacrifice for you, then it doesn't really work as a sacrifice. Giving God something that costs you little or nothing, like a blind, lame, or sick animal, it just isn't okay. Now, we don't offer sacrifices like they did back then. The temple is gone. Jesus ended the need for the continuous stream of sacrifices by being a sacrifice for us. But while we don't offer sacrifices like they did, that doesn't mean we're not called to be priests or to offer sacrifices. No, instead the book of Philippians calls us to offer up our finances as a sacrifice. And in the book of Hebrews, our praise and our good works, our, our songs and service, if you will, as a sacrifice. And in the book of Romans, our very lives as a sacrifice. Well, in all those things, the truth remains. That a sacrifice that costs us little or nothing isn't really a sacrifice. And said so God wanted our best, our first fruits, and the first place in our lives. Over in the Gospel of Luke, we come across a story of a wealthy man that approached Jesus wanting to know what he must do to inherit eternal life. The man, he, he believed he kept all the commandments, offered sacrifice when he had failed, but felt that something was still missing. Jesus knew what it was. And so he said to him, one thing you lack, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and then you will have treasures in heaven. Well, sadly, it was too much for him, and so the man walked away. You see, Jesus, he knew that the man worshipped his money, that it was first in his life. Jesus wasn't willing to settle for second place, for second best, and so if the man wasn't willing to give it away, he would let that man walk away. Today, like the priest of Malachi's day, we aren't inclined to do that, are we? No one said, if we were Jesus there, when the man turned and started to walk away, we would have been tempted to chase after him and say, okay, all is too much. Maybe I overstepped there. Don't give it all away. What about half? Maybe give half of what you own away. 
well, that's too much. Well, maybe a tenth, a tithe, or, or maybe a percent now and a percent later, or, or forget about it at all. Just come. We could use the, the attendance numbers. We would be willing to settle for blemish sacrifice, second best, second place for our Lord. How do I know? Because we see it in the church all the time and don't call each other on it. We seem to settle for whatever worship someone thinks is good enough for them. And most of the time, like those in Judah that were bringing the required animals, but only those that were second rate because it would affect their standard of living and might cost too much, our sacrifices are often second rate and leftovers too, giving as little as we think we can get away with. I remember one family I ministered to a couple decades ago in another church. They were involved in the church. They were even key members in the church. Well, one summer they got an in-ground pool. I'll never forget when I saw it. It was impressive. The lady of the house was so proud of it. And then she told me that, in, she, that instead of giving to the church, they had put the pool in that year. But that that was okay since she wanted me to know that I could use it and the church could use it whenever we wanted. It was her offering. Like Judah, she wanted to benefit from her sacrifice. And as a result, there was no sacrifice to her sacrifice. Well, hopefully you and I, we haven't gone that far. But my guess is that, that at some point, we've tried to minimize our sacrifice. No, maybe it wasn't around money. Maybe it was around time. Giving God and his work what little time you have left over after your work and your family and your holidays and your hobbies and TV time. Well, here God is clear that that isn't the kind of sacrifice that he wants. That he wants and deserves the best. That's how we've reduced the words of the hymn or we've often reduced the words of the hymn, I surrender all to I surrender some in our hearts. At least that, that is what the people of Malachi's day were doing. And yet they failed to see it. Instead, they were acting as if everything was okay, as if what they were doing would even be enough to gain God's favor. At least that is what verse 9 says. Let me paraphrase it for you. You offer that dribble and now you ask for God's favor? Today you might put it this way. God, I, I know I haven't attended church in a while. I know I haven't been faithful to read your word. I, I know I haven't given much of my resources to your ministry. I haven't devoted much time to sharing the gospel. But God, would you do this or would you do that for me? No, don't hear me wrong. God isn't saying that we somehow can earn his favor by actually doing any of these things. Rather, the, the, that the inconsistency of it is appalling. You don't honor him, but you want him to honor you. You don't do what he wants, but you want him to do what you want. Do you really think that God will respond favorably to your request? Do you really think that your pitiful offering will turn his head? Here is he is telling you they won't. In fact, he doesn't even want them. Well, truthfully, giving their second best or third or 43rd best was only a symptom of a greater problem, which leads us to the last thing we want to notice today, that not only does God want our best in worship, but that he won't settle for less than our whole heart in worship. That God wants us to worship with our whole heart. Sadly here, it wasn't just the priest's actions that screamed of their disdain for the Lord's table. No one said they were even trying to hide their true feelings as they were telling others that they'd become bored by their work, that it had become a drudgery for them. Meaningless rituals that they just had to go through, a wearisome burden and a nuisance. What, this continual job of offering sacrifices? They huffed at it. They snorted at it. That word nuisance or burden here, it's used elsewhere to describe the weariness the Israelites felt as they walked through the wilderness for 40 years. They were burdened, tired of it. 
Here, the priests saw their work as a burdensome labor. Their hearts were no longer in it. We too can get there at times, can't we? In fact, I can't tell you how many times over the past several decades I've heard a believer say to me, I hate going to church. Church is frustrating. It's boring. It's a waste of my time. Sadly, it's something that more recently I've even heard from pastors. It's one of the reasons why some of my colleagues have kept their church closed even when they could open over the last year. It's that they've enjoyed not working weekends. They can record during the week and do something else on the weekend. Like somehow, working weekends wasn't an upfront expectation when they became a pastor. Sadly, they've started to see serving and worshiping God as a nuisance. Something that gets in the way, that takes away from their time at the cottage, that prevents them from living life to the full. So it isn't just them. I mean, how many believers do you know that don't go to church anymore? That don't give God the time of day in their lives? It's ironic, really. After all, most seem all too happy to give their hearts, their time, and even their possessions to their idols, but not so much to God. And just think about your own life for a minute. Start with your money. We all have those things we enjoy spending money on, be it clothes or an updated version of the latest computer game or golf clubs or a new car or saving for retirement. I personally like to spend money on buying exotic wood to work with in my shop and boats that need to be fixed, but While there are things we like to spend our money on, there's other things that we hate to part our cash for. I mean, who likes to pay bills or college tuition or car repairs or visits to the dentist? Well, for a minute, think where on that spectrum giving to the Lord falls. Think about how you respond when you've managed to scrimp some more money away. I mean, are you happy to give it to support a friend's summer mission trip? Or do you conveniently lose the letter that they sent to you asking for support in a drawer somewhere? Or for a minute, consider your time. Most of us live busy lives. We we long to spend some time reading a book or visiting with a friend. Well, what if all your regular responsibilities were canceled for 24 hours? You didn't have to do any of them. All the demands were gone. How would you spend your day? And perhaps you'd choose to have an extra day with your kids. Or maybe you'd want a day free from your kids. Would you curl up with a book or would you go to the gym? Would you simply like to catch up on work without interruption? What were the things you'd want to do? Well, whatever those activities are, they say a great deal about the focus of your heart. I mean, would you invest any time, any of that time in your relationship with God and doing a devotional, visiting someone that was sick, picking up the phone and encouraging another believer? Would those things even make your list? Or would you give all the time away to other things? to other idols. Or or just think about the things you get frustrated about when they get squeezed and pushed out of your day. The things when you look back on your day you wish you had more time for. Are you ever frustrated over the amount of time that our other activities have taken away from your time with God? Or consider how you think about Sunday services or daily devotions. Do you look forward to them? Do you carve out and protect time for them? Or is you Or are you just as happy when something else comes along that you need to do? Or do you sniff at them in your mind and think, what a bore. If only I could stay in bed a little longer. If only I was surfing the internet or doing anything else. As one author put it, we diligently prepare ourselves for exams, for dates, for job interviews and presentations at work. But when when it comes to worship, we frequently appear with tired minds and unprepared hearts as if nothing important were scheduled to occur. We saunter in late and allow our minds to drift throughout the service, 
practices we would never expect our employers or honored guests in our homes to tolerate. Well, we're all too happy to sit through a three or four hour opera or symphony or to attend a marathon sports event and even rejoice when the game goes into extra innings. We gripe when our services run over an hour. Will the Lord accept such obvious boredom? Dear friends, don't miss it. When you or I find church a drudgery or do not put the Lord first in our lives, we are in effect saying that God is not that special to us, that he's not that important or significant to us, at least not as important or significant as those other things that we put in, that play, in his place. Even worse, despite doing so, we somehow have convinced ourselves, like those in Malachi, that God is delighted with whatever half-hearted odds and ends of worship we bring. And so we bring as an offering the equivalent of a cheap plastic statue with the logo World's Best Deity on it, a blemished sacrifice, half-hearted leftovers, and expect God to be thrilled with it. But God, He isn't thrilled with it. You see, before God ever accepts your gift, He inspects your heart. A believer attended worship for the first time in a church in Africa. She just recently become a believer. Well, during the part of the service, they passed the plate. It was something she had never seen before. So she watched to see what people were doing, and she watched as people took money out of their pockets and put them in the plate. So she reached into her pocket, only to discover that she had no money. As the plate was being passed down her row, the usher handed it to her, and she didn't know what to do. So she set it on the ground, and she stood inside the plate and speaking loudly, said, God, I don't have any money, but you can have all of me. And that is the kind of heart that God wants to see when we worship him. Over in Luke 21, Jesus saw a widow give two small coins of the temple treasury and said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put, more, put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Well, when a few small coins that weigh more than a whole river of givers we either have, as, as one pastor put it, a new form of math or a spiritual principle that God, he looks to the heart. Well, here in Malachi, we learn that not only does God look to the heart, but he won't settle for just half of it. In fact, he goes so far as to say it would be better if they just stopped. Look at verse 10. Oh, that one of you would shut the doors of the temple so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. Someone, anyone, put a stop to it. This going through the motions, just to go through the motion half-hearted without bringing the best, it's got to stop. It's giving me a headache. I'm sick of it. Silence would be better. In other words, the best contribution a priest could make would be to shut the whole thing down, even though it would have broken some of the laws God had given them. That would be better than observing the offerings like they were, as the whole intent of the sacrificial system was being ignored. But not only that, no, I think even more than that, more than disappointed, you got to think that this greatly upset God. After all, the reasons the sacrifices were to be unblemished was because they were all to point to his son, to Jesus, as a perfect sacrifice. So by bringing in less, they were mocking him. Blemish substitute could never depict the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Making blemish sacrifices not only an insult to the gift that Jesus would bring, but blasphemous. So the temple, their means of forgiveness, the center of their lives, it would be better off if it was closed. It was so upsetting to God that he'd rather have it closed down and not put up with those offerings. In fact, God, he takes it a step further and promises that he will curse Remove from their place of blessing those that have made vows and failed to keep them. Those that have defiled the sacrifices 
and by doing so, so shown contempt for his name. Well, just for a minute, ask yourself, does God ever do that today? Does he ever say to those who claim to be his followers, just don't bother to come to church anymore? I mean, if I can't be first, if you're only willing to give me your second best, if, if, if you're not even going to try to follow me and put me first, I'd rather you not. Sadly, I, I think he does. Just as Jesus was willing to let the rich young ruler walk away rather than settle for less. Does God, does he ever say to churches today, why don't you just leave your building closed this Sunday? Let the pastor and Sunday school teachers stay home. Let them stay in bed. You're preaching, you're singing. It's are nothing but useless exercises for me. I find them boring and dull. I believe he does. In fact, I believe he does so far more often than we may think. Truthfully, I think he even does what he threatened in Malachi to do and removes his blessing from them. Over in Revelation 2, we come across Jesus writing or speaking to a church in Ephesus. Ephesus was an active church that was doing good things, but we're no longer putting Jesus first. Jesus said to them, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Jesus told them that he'd remove his presence, the lampstands. He'd remove his blessings if they didn't return. That in essence, he would close the doors, their doors himself if they didn't put him first. I think God does the same thing with some churches today. It isn't that God won't be worshipped, because he will. It's just that he will get his worship from somewhere else. If not in the temple designed for it, with the people chosen for it, then from everywhere, from the rising to the setting of the sun, from the uttermost east to the most distant west, and everywhere in between by everyone. I don't know where you're at today, but I do know this, that we are all guilty of failing to give God our best at times and failing to worship Him with our whole hearts. Now, the pull of the world is strong and the pressure of society powerful. And so often, without even realizing it, we let our worship slip until it becomes something that it wasn't meant to be. Boring and routine and mundane. Well, if that is you, you need to repent this morning. And then not try harder, not buckle down, but fall in love again. Remember who God is and what he has done for you. See, you can't guilt yourself out of half-hearted worship any more than a wife can guilt her husband into giving her a more wholehearted gift. Instead, it's only by remembering who God is and all that he's done for you that you can truly worship him as he deserves. John Piper once wrote, If you don't see the greatness of God, then other things become very exciting. If you can't see the sun, you'll be impressed with a street light. If you never felt thunder and lightning, you'll be impressed with fireworks. And if you turn your back on the greatness and majesty of God, you'll fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures, and you'll give your hearts to them, and you'll worship and your worship of the one true God who's worthy of all praise, the very maker of the galaxies and ruler of the nations and knower of all mysteries and lover of your soul will become boring and incepted, incepted and unceptable to God. So today, remember. Remember who God is. Remember that He chose you. He loved you. He redeemed you. Created you. Stays with you. That He is there to comfort, guide, and protect you. And that He has given you hope. Refocus your life on Him. And then respond by giving Him the kind of worship 
the kind of praise and service he deserves. This morning, do what that young lady in Africa did and respond by putting yourself in the offering plate. Would you pray with me? Father, forgive us when we forget who you are, when we forget about your greatness, when we forget about your majesty and sovereignty, the wonder of everything that you've done for us, and because of it, our worship becomes insipid and boring, half-hearted dribble that we bring. Help us to continually see you in your greatness and respond in the kind of worship that you and you alone are truly worthy of. In Jesus' name, amen.